0: All right, so it's rather loud when you're the only one speaking. Uh, <laughs> so today, uh, our title um, for this Advent Seminar, uh, we wa- I wanted to present um, a uh, both, the, the goal is twofold in the title for the Advent Seminar is Give Your Offering Unto the Lord, Offerings of Gratitude Through the Church, in, Through Treasures, Time, and Talent. Um, And the goal is really two major major goals for our understanding of what it means to give an offering to the Lord and what um, that establishes as our relationship with God, Um, but also to um, encourage our understanding of this, that this goes all the way back to the very beginnings of creation, giving an offering to the Lord um, through what we have our very substance, um, and we'll look at the various ways that we, um, our Lord acknowledges that it is our very substance and the way that we see our very substance through our time, our treasures, and our talents, um, that we um, can give those to the Lord and that our Lord has never left us um, to sort of just figure it out for ourselves. Largely, he has pastorally, as our good shepherd, guided us in ways that we can do this, and that this also comes along with um, him offering himself back to us, and that this is a free gift, even with the way that the Lord has told us that he desires us to make certain offerings and how we should do it, but this is done in, first off, a free act of faith, and with a certain kind, as we'll see in the promise of tithes, that they actually come with a specific type of promise. And so we're going to work our way through how those um, offerings, the way God has guided our offerings from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve through all of the patriarchs of the Old Testament and on into the New Testament and into the fathers, how there's this line of thought developed but always back to the root of of what it means to give our time, our talents, and our treasure to God. Um, There are wells that we can dip into and drink from. And the main goal today is to give um, a survey and a spiritual context to our offerings. That's um, where we'll go. The, the, The stages that I've just laid out, those three, from the beginning of the patriarchs, the development through the Old Testament and what that actually looked like and its purpose, the offerings that God guided there, the New Testament expression and grappling with that, and also the patristic continuity of those two things all the way up into our present context. And ultimately to be encouraged by that historical context, to understand what it means to give an offering unto the Lord. And then what do we do with that in our modern way of living life? We... Aren't a bunch of farmers as the patriarchs of old were or even many of our um, American forebears were? Um, How does this look in a modern financial context? Um, And begin to offer a little bit of guidance, perhaps as a jumping off point for uh, our Q&A session. So we'll take a little bit of a break, um, a little bathroom and coffee break halfway through. presentation today, and then live, leave room um, after we come back in a little bit of a summary and finishing off the topic, then we'll open up for Q&A. Um, that'll be sort of what to expect. Um, perhaps we won't be here for the first full two hours, but this is, this is for us. So give your offering to the Lord, offerings of gratitude through the church and treasure, time, and talents. The chief and fundamental teaching of the church is that all offerings, no matter what kind they are, anytime you offer something to the Lord, whether it is giving something to the church directly or to the needy poor, it's a free response to God's providence that is already there for us. God has already provided for us, and that gives us the very means to be able to go and do provide God's providence to others. So that's the kernel that we'll begin expanding from. It's a free personal act of faith and trust in God under the church's pastoral guidance. From the very beginning, this is how um, we ha- the, those people of God have followed this. An offering places the person into the presence of God and then seeks his blessing hand on that offering. This is the movement that is fundamental to giving our offering to the Lord, the spiritual movement there. All offering of whatever kind is a way to give yourself to God. It's a way to seek a relationship with him and to seek his blessing over your life. So anytime there's this offering, it's a response to what God has already done. But then at the same time, it's also a way to seek the blessings specifically in your life. This is how you should see this. All offerings are the giving of yourself, the seeking of a blessing, and an offer of gratitude. That context of the offering of gratitude um, takes on a whole new uh, life within the Christian church. The Eucharist that we celebrate every Sunday becomes, which the church has always seen as the mother of all spiritual blessings. The partaking of communion is the mother of all spiritual blessings. And the Eucharist is the main context. The, the worship of the Eucharist in the divine liturgy is the main context that, as we will see, the Christian church, the fathers of old from the New Testament on, see as the proper place for offerings to be made. And as as we go through in more detail, we'll see that this is an extension of seeing the church as the temple. As we make our way through the Old Testament, we'll get into a little bit more detail, but we'll see that the church, the fathers see the church as the inheritor of everything that happened in the temple. And the The proper place for offerings to God was always the Old Testament temple. And so when offerings become Christianized outside of the uh, context of the Old Testament law, the Eucharist becomes that place where all of the offerings are sanctified and offered along with the elements of the Eucharistic offering for communion. They become not necessarily part and parcel, but participate within the Eucharistic offering. So that when the priest says, um, thine own of thine own we offer unto thee on behalf of all and for all, specifically, what's being lifted up is the elements of the Eucharist, but the Christian church has always understood that to be more of an all-encompassing statement than just the particulars of bread and wine being offered up. And we'll spend a little bit of time right now going into what it took because i think often in our in our age we are divorced from what it meant to provide bread and to provide wine for the eucharistic offering and if we spend a little bit of time on that we'll see that our offerings um, can take on the eucharistic character and they really sort of just go right into that same attitude that would have been subconsciously understood in that offering. So what does it take to make bread? Bread takes a lot of effort (laughs) to, to have. It's not something that you just can go and pick up at the supermarket and our mind doesn't go to how it got there. But in the ancient world, they knew that the beginning of a bread offering began from the seed that they planted into the ground and that before even that they prepared that ground to receive that seed and then they took care of that crop and then they had to cultivate it months later they cultivated after taking care of it and then they ground that wheat into flour and then they baked it someone baked it they, had to, they gave and poured themselves into the effort of kneading the dough, of preparing it, waiting, stamping it, baking it, and then bringing it on the day of the Divine Liturgy to the church. And wine, similarly. But even more so, they had to prepare the ground, have grapes that properly could be turned into, um, into wine. It was fermented took longer than the baking of the bread to become proper wine. Then it was bottled up in some form and then brought to the church as an offering. All of this took the skill, the effort, the time, the talent, and in many ways in the ancient world, the very things that they eat, they ate, that they clothed themselves with, that they brought, was their wealth. It was their treasure. Any time that they brought this wine or this bread or any other element, it was something that they could have provided simply just for their own household, their their own wives and husbands and children and anyone else in that household. So the Eucharist, we see from the very beginning, is an offering very much in line with with this time, talent, and treasure. And it's particular request of God, a command of God, more to say more accurately, a command of God that these are the elements for this kind of offering. So it's an offering given by the people of God with the guidance of what God has commanded and that it is an act of all of the people of God on behalf of them. All of these elements you'll see um, are born out of what it is that the Eucharist is, and how it gets to the altar <laughs> eventually, and then offered up with that liturgy in the middle of the anaphora on behalf of all and for all. So all of that is a way of saying that we offer our very substance, the very things that sustain our life. Bread f- is food. Right? and In the ancient world, it was the most fundamental food, the most necessary food that we, every person needed. It is an act that is given in the context of thanksgiving to God. We are giving some of ourselves as gratitude, which is why we call the act a Eucharistic offering, a thanksgiving offering for what God has already accomplished. He gave us that, and we're also including the very substance, some set substantive things, in the, uh, the the context of thanking him for all of the acts that he has accomplished for our salvation. There's a reason that those elements are offered just as the priest is naming all of the acts of Christ, just as he is naming the acts that our Lord came and saved us. So thanksgiving from our very substance, offering something from our very substance to the Lord as an act of thanksgiving is fundamental to all of our understandings of offering. And in return, our Lord accepts and changes that offering and then gives it back to us. He accepts, he changes it, and then he offers it back to us as something wholly different. Right? It becomes from bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ. Another thing that we should note here is that all of this happens in a local context. It doesn't happen in a context of an abstract church. The Eucharist isn't offered, um, even though it is offered on behalf of all and for all, in only one place, or in one at one time and never at any other time. There's a specific time and a specific place that happens all over the world. And so the context is our local parish is where the Thanksgiving offering is made. The local parish is one way, and perhaps I would say the chief and the primary way, the default way, if you will, that we should give our offerings in and through the church, not necessarily its peripheral organizations that are well and good, these ministries of the church that are bigger than the local. We can give to those, but the primary and the default way that we give to the church is through the parish life, because this is where we actually experience the Eucharistic offering. This is where we actually experience the sacrament itself. We don't experience the sacrament itself in a bigger way, any other bigger way, than where we are in a local time and place. We experience the Eucharist at St. Athanasius, here in Santa Barbara, on a Sunday morning or other days of the week. So it's there that the material substance of our life is given. Christ Christ calls each of us to enter this act more deeply with our whole self through other offerings. And that's what we're going to get to. Um, A second aspect of, of an offering, we said that it's in thanksgiving, but it can also be and seen probably most spiritually beneficial to us as an act of asceticism. Offering as an act of asceticism, right? Asceticism, as we've been working through as a parish in our studies and through um, just our day-to-day lives, is the act of coming before the Lord and following His ways. We understand asceticism often as things that we give up, but I think in the Christian context, we'd be best to also, we'd be short-sighted to only count it as things that we've lost. But rather, it's things that we give to the Lord. It's Christian sacrifice is really about personal giving. Yes, sometimes our giving can be a martyrdom. It can be the day-to-day asceticism. It can be the honest confession before God of this is what I have and this is who I am. Lord, do something with it and with me. That's really the, the biggest context of the biggest understanding that we should have about asceticism. Asceticism, in some sense, is the spiritual extension of those sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we can often get caught up in um, that they were slaughtering animals, that they, it must have been a bloody place. It, and we lose sight of what happened after that. <laughs> we lose sight of the fact that in almost all of the offerings of the Old Testament, a meal took place after, that all the people took, partook of. Sometimes it was just the priest who took care who, who had the rights to that meal. But often, the priest prepared the sacrifice, if it was an animal sacrifice, he prepared it like much like a butcher would prepare a a chicken or a lamb or a cow to become beef, poultry to eat. Um, And then he would give it back to them. And they would partake of this as a way of communing with God. The sacrifice, again, you see that movement of the Eucharist was foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrifices. In asceticism, this same movement happens um, without the overt incarnational elements, without the overt uh, meal taking place. The slaughter is, and the cultivation, because it, uh, animal sacrifices weren't the only sacrifices. There were also grain sacrifices as well. So, and spices added sometimes to certain offerings, but that's a whole other detail for later. But what we can see is that, that very, the slaughtering and the cultivation of those offerings is the same thing as our ascetic effort. But it's not the end in itself. The end is to have the righteous life, to have a, a life that sees and partakes with God, to have communion with him. But you can't have that communion without the cultivation element. right? without having the elements of the meal there. So in many of our ways, when we understand sacrifice, we need to understand that those one leads to the other. Sacrifice is the whole thing, but often we lose sight and sacrifice is just in the loss of, we think of it only in the slaughter. We think of it only in that now I don't have the cow, (laughs) or I don't have the lamb. You need that element in order to have the meal, the shared meal with the Lord. So our offerings can be that kind of asceticism as well. And in our asceticism, the elements of our life that we are offering to God, we see him change us. We see him change those specific elements for our good and use them to become the source of blessings in our life. If any of you are interested in seeing this connection of uh, New Testament and Christian asceticism to, um, to the Old Testament sacrifices and how the fathers talked about them, St. Cyril of Alexandria has tons to say of it in a work called Worship in Spirit. Clement of Alexandria in his Stromata has a bunch to say about drawing parallels and how the um, – how the Old Testament sacrifices can be seen as in parallels to the Christian ascetic effort and in worship specifically. And uh, John Chrysostom has a whole lot to say in his homilies on the epistle to the Hebrews and the epistle to the Romans regarding this. He spends a whole lot of time sort of unpacking all of these ways of reading the Old Testament and seeing what what was God called upon to do and how they were Christianized. But our point isn't to Dig into all the details of that, but I I drop it for posterity in the recording and for any of you that may want to to sort of dig in and find those. Um, There's this other element that of that I want to hone in on um, of particular sacrifices. There were many different kinds of sacrifices called on in the Old Testament. There were Whole burnt offerings, which is the one we'll we'll focus on in just a minute, there were grain offerings, there were sin offerings, and then there was also the tithe, which we'll focus on uh, for quite a bit when we get to um, what that looks like for us. But the whole burnt offerings and the grain offerings were purposefully embedded with meal imagery more so than the sin offerings, Um, and these this meal imagery had that physical element there. But what's particular about the whole burnt offerings is that no human being ate that meat. It was a meal meant only for God. It was a, a complete, it is of all of the kinds of sacrifices, it was, it's the only one for which the people offered and didn't receive anything physically back. The whole animal was consumed in fire and offered to God. So what is it that we Christians can take from this imagery? And it's important to to have it in our mind because it captures the abundant gratitude that God is calling people to have for the things that he has already provided. Abundant profligacy. Like there is nothing that I am going to give back, but I am giving everything of this particular offering back and expecting nothing in return. So it had no uh, earthly usefulness. No one could make the excuse, well, I'm going to have this meal after. God just wants to use it in a particular way. But there is, in that whole burnt offering, it is the earliest form of sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament. It is the type of uh, offering that Abel gave and that Cain attempted to give, (laughs) but it was unacceptable to the Lord. We see the whole burnt offerings happening even before the law was given as an act of thanksgiving. And it's the whole reason that altars were built. Everything else sort of came after, the other kinds of offerings came along with the law of God. And in the New Testament, we can see this whole burnt offering imagery given in the woman who poured myrrh upon Christ. There was nothing of worldly benefit that she would get back from that. It was an entirely a spiritual offering of thanksgiving for the Lord. Right? And it's this whole burnt offering can be kind of scandalous, and that's why I'm spending time with it, because that very act of the woman who poured myrrh, is the, that's the reason Judas decided to, to portray the Lord, is because he took a quibble with the usefulness of that offering. He said, how much more could we do if we sold this instead of giving it to, the God, giving it to Jesus? meaning pouring it out, and it's used. We, we can't sell this anymore. And it's that very whole burnt offering essence, that same spirit of offering that this woman had, that God was calling the people of old to have from the very beginning, to give everything over to God. And though we can focus very often on Christ in his passion in the cross as the lamb of god which he is the paschal lamb he was also the whole burnt offering he gave himself wholly and totally with nothing held back upon the cross to his to his father in heaven on our behalf and so unlike all the other kinds of offerings our the whole burnt offering is an is informs how the spirit of what our offerings should be, of giving our whole substance and expecting not necessarily anything in return, but just wholly and completely with nothing mixed in an act of gratitude. So these, these elements inform thanksgiving, whole burnt offerings, our asceticism. These are the background of all the details that we'll begin to Dig into um, as we go through a historical tracing of how God guided offerings through um, w- with His people through time, through the fathers, through the patriarchs, through the law, through even the canonical literature of the church. So, what are those two those elements that we'll focus on today? We're not talking in a great deal about all the other kinds of offerings. We'll talk mostly today about the um, wealth offerings or the treasure offerings that God guided with his people. Um, and not unlike the other kinds of offerings that are we automatically think of as more related to the liturgy or related to worship, they, God says, do it in this way. Right? When Moses comes down from the mountain, he came with the template of worship, with the template of the temple and a particular way to build it. And just like that worship was guided by God, so are our financial or our treasure offerings, guided to, toward a certain way with, with, by, by our Lord. Part of that is a tithe, but as we see that that is just a it is a beginning, if you will, if that may be hard to hear, but the tithe is actually simply a beginning of that offering. So the two types of sacrificial giving. There are two types of sacrificial giving uh, within the Christian context. And I give this sort of as a precursor as we will lead up to this. And those two types of sacrificial giving with our finances, with our treasure, or our wealth, is charity and almsgiving, given to those in need. But even that is not wholly just treasure. The Father is a very um, quick, and careful to not say, if you write a check and hand it off to an or- to the church, your jo- that doesn't mean you're covered. That doesn't mean that your job is done. You have no more to give to the needy. But in our acts of hospitality toward the stranger, in sharing the faith, those are also acts of charity. Those are also acts of almsgiving that are necessary. It's the personal contact with the person and the desire to truly help them in their whole being that counts as charity and almsgiving. And then the second one, we call in the modern church, in our modern language, something like called stewardship, um, which is the care for the ministries of the church. You give directly to the church so that the church can function we've sort of summed all that up into one word called stewardship. And we may quibble of whether that's a good word or not, but the purpose is the same, is that we have charity and almsgiving, which we give to the poor on behalf, of, on behalf of our relationship with God to care for them. It's a way to love our neighbor. But the other part of loving our neighbor is giving directly to the church as an act of stewardship so that the church can operate freely. And this is really... Um, this is something that God calls us to do, and as we'll see, even comes all the way back with the temple worship. So how do we know this? In 1 Corinthians 9.13, St. Paul has this to say, Do you not know that those who perform sacrifices eat from the sacrifice? Those who serve at the altar partake of the altar. In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel to give, get their living from the gospel. So we see immediately from the beginning of the the apostolic ministry that the extension of the Levite priests and all the ministries of the temple worship are brought over into the gospel, into the church. And St. Paul is saying, if the church is to flourish in its worship, we need to take care of it. We need to take care of those who are in full-time ministry. This isn't just, I think it's important to say that he isn't just talking about priests. He's talking about those who are day in and day out working on behalf of the church for the sake of the gospel, as he says. They're proclaiming the gospel. St. Paul also counts as another, um, another example when he was asking for specific donations for certain things, he writes in Philippians four fifteen 15-19, thanking the people for these donations. But St. Paul also is not counting them as a personal gift. He acknowledges, yes, I'm the one who is receiving them. But those gifts are ones that they are giving to the Lord. So part of the sharing of the gospel is that anything that is given to the church is given to the as to God, all of the offerings are given as to God. Even if they're say, Saint, in, in this specific case, I believe it's Saint Paul had a few different donations, but I think the one in Philippians is um, collections for the poor in Jerusalem. Um, Mark may be able to tell me specifically or not. I'm not sure it, in Philippians, but e- in either case, he was it was a ch- he was raising for. A charitable cause on behalf so that all the Philippian churches and he did this with other churches too and thanked them for it they gave to the Lord through the Apostle and he sent those to help the needy in Jerusalem but all of those were counted as not gifts to St. Paul so that he can get credit but he gives immediate credit and thanks them for what they are willing to offer to the Lord on behalf as an expression of their love. So the support of the missionary efforts of the church are also a way of giving to the Lord. So whenever you give, it's as a sacrifice. You are practicing a form of asceticism, and this purposefully unshackles covetousness or greed within you by these acts. It frees you to give ever more of yourself, more of your substance to God. And then in the second type of giving to the church there is, meaning directly as an act of say, stewardship, is a deep connection with the divine liturgy, particularly there. Because every instance that we see in the New Testament that isn't charity as is almsgiving to the the needy person directly in front of me, giving them water and food and clothing and so on, is mentioned within the context of the worship of the church. And as we'll see, this goes very, very deep into and is always connected when when the church has been mindful of it to the Eucharistic offering. Um, It's understood as to be part of the divine liturgy. Um, that's the context for how people make their offerings. And then the church takes charge of disseminating those out back to the poor as a changed thing, with God's blessing. So we are joined together in the Eucharist, we give all of our substance in various ways, and then that is given back out. So what are these kinds of offerings? And we can begin to go into some of the details there. As we've said, it's time, talent, and treasure. That's a way to sum it all up. All of that means it's all of you. It's another way of saying it's all of you. Is there anything about you that isn't your time, your skills, or what you have accumulated or bring in? This is all of your the exterior elements of really who you are that can be offered back, right? So. They're a way through these things of giving thanksgiving to God, and that we are also communally together in those offerings. We are together as the offering, and we also offer certain things of ourselves. So what is a time and what is talents? We're not gonna spend a lot of time there, but I do wanna draw attention to what that means. I think chiefly time and talent is our attendance and our attention, the two A's. It's our attendance at church, but also we can attend and be mindless about it, but it's also our attention. And when we have attendance, our presence is there, and we have attention, that is where prayer and worship really happen. That is where a person actually is worshiping. And so when we give our time and we give our talents, we need to show up, and we need to pay attention, (laughs) that prayer God can use to change you, that is part of the basics of giving yourself to God. I am here, Lord, what would you have me do with who I am now? So that fundamental prayer before God with acknowledging his presence is the basic need undergirding any offering but then we have talents right that's the chief element of our time but we also have talents to join to that we can think of these as our our various skills that we may have our natural giftings or things that we've learned to do well these are the skills that we can offer to God and God calls all of us to use our skills toward worship and toward glorifying him this is what ministry like a specific ministry Fundamentally, it's providing yourself in a specific manner with your skills. And this was the same when the first temple was built. Moses came down from the mountain with the template, as we just said, but it took craftsmen, it took people with particular skills, particular giftings to ready those materials to be proper for worship. It took someone who knew how to weave. It took someone who knew how to embroider. It took someone who knew how to melt and form gold, to carve, to build. It took people who knew how to write the texts of worship, the psalms. It took people who knew how to sing. It took people who knew how to organize all of those efforts. So that's from the very beginning we see God guiding those skills in making the temple. In the New Testament, we see examples of this because none of the apostles traveled alone. We see this evident in St. Paul in naming and thanking all of his fellow workers, right? Those people weren't just following along as like fanboys (laughs) and women. They had jobs, they had skills. They probably kept Paul's schedule of when to go. We see hints of this of him saying things like, I think I'll winter here and then move on, but he doesn't exactly know the answer, right? Um, We see them in specific thanks for people taking care of some of the elements. There's a line in, uh, I can't remember which epistle, where he tells someone to bring his coat to him that he accidentally left somewhere else, right? So we see that there are people with specific talents and skills so that the apostle— could preach the word undistracted. And that's part of one of the New Testament context. But then we also see that there were people who had to build these churches. There were people who had to, in the modern context, paint the icons, carve the, the furniture of the church, um, make the vestments. All of these are part and parcel. Um, and then also to just take care of the maintenance of the church, the day-to-day things that everyone sort of overlooks. All of these are the talents that we can give of our substance to God. So it's a lot harder to talk about those in any specific of like what God guides because every person has a different amount of time they can give, a different amount of or types of skills that they can offer. But if you have them, offer them to the church. Tell someone about them so that God can Bring his blessing into those actions. If you don't offer it, then there will be no other blessing there. One of the fundamental principles is that if you don't offer it, then it can't be used. It can't be changed and offered back. Changed, purified, blessed for you. So assess your life. Look at your skills. Look at what you can. And work toward giving those in a reliable and um, God-blessed, God-guided way as you can. Perhaps you have a skill or or something that um, the church in your context can't use at that time. Offer it to the Lord and humbly say, Lord, if you will, then the context will be there. But we all have something that we could give and let God um, use it as he wills. So what I want to focus on now sort of transition is really focused on how the scriptures, the fathers, the New Testament church, and the fathers looked at treasure offerings, that element that um, is sometimes scary (laughs) to people of what, why are we talking about my finances? But God has never been shy about talking about those things. From the very beginning, he had He guided how one is to offer their wealth, their their income, their finances, but really give them over to God. What we'll see is that the Holy Fathers adopted what they saw in that Old Testament guidance of, of the offerings as the church's template. But ultimately, their teaching surpasses the teachings of the Old Testament. They... Surpass it because in the Old Testament we see God saying, giving certain little parameters of how to give. But the fathers, following um, the radicalness of the New Testament, following the Lord, see this teaching as the beginning, that the New Testament calls us to go beyond. And how do we go beyond that? We don't limit. We don't limit what God can claim from our lives. We become that whole burnt offering. They teach us to count all that we have as gods. Not just God has the rights to this portion during this time. But rather, we see the radicalness of the New Testament church in the book of Acts of giving everything over to God through the church. So they we see that treasure, that time and talents, everything as in uh, Luke 14, as belonging to God. So when we give to and through our Eucharistic community, through our parish, this is not simply for paying for the clergy to serve or to keep the church doors open and the lights on, rather our offerings are an expression and a realization of our unity together in Christ that are embodied in the church and that it is a way to give everything that we have to him. We are given that context. Our offerings help the entire community to worship chiefly together and also to support the ministries that help all of those around us and when we do that, it's given in the context, as we've said, in behalf of all and for all. So our treasures can be offered to God through various means tithes, alms to the needy, spontaneous free will offerings, for certain causes, such as OCMC is, say, raising money for missionaries, or IOCC is helping and sending and helping refugees in this place. Um, Something local needs something. These are spontaneous free will offerings. And the fathers have a good deal to say about it. And we'll get there. But we also see all of these as an, each one of those is an element of a healthy spiritual life. We look at our things and we see how can we use them for the glory of God. So our offerings of our treasure, I think the reason that it's sometimes tough to talk about is because And the fathers are very clear on pointing this out for ourselves that we don't like to look at. We put blinders on often. That when we look at our treasures, when we look at our income, we look at our finances, we see those very easily as mine and who I am, even in a subtle way sometimes. But treasure sometimes is very hard to offer more than time or skills or talent. Those those can be areas of struggle as well, but often we see our treasure as, that's mine for the future, some sort of security, or even this is my identity of what I'm able to do, whether we have a lot or we have a little. Um, And so, offering our treasure is the clearest way that we become stewards of God, stewards toward the things of God, rather, to say more accurately. And that we are able to see that offering as who we are, our substance, and that that's, who we're, that's what we're giving to our God. So money or wealth is most often seen in that context. And in fact, the, the, the Greeks, the, in, in the Greek, whenever, um, like the rich young man, when he is uh, told to give up his wealth, the word there is usia his substance, but we understand that as wealth. We understand that as what he had financially, and that's understood as who he is. That word osea is the same one that we use for natures, like human nature, God nature, and so wealth and nature shared a word there in the scriptures, and so it's very easy to see those things as fundamentally who we are, even if maybe we don't intellectually regard it, but if it's difficult to give it up, then it's, we probably have something very fundamental to us, subconsciously perhaps. So giving it is sometimes the hardest thing to do, but it's also the clearest way to give who we are to God. And so God, through the history of working with his people, um, looks at this and guides these kinds of offerings. Let's see, where are we at with time? We'll talk about the Old Testament and then we'll take a break. So what is that history of offerings in wealth? There are three ways that this is sort of divided. One is called the first fruit offerings. The other is our tithes and the other is free will offerings. And we see these three teachings on treasure Begin in the Old Testament and be continued through the entire history of the church. Um, that first fruit offerings, as we've said um, and mentioned in, in sort of the whole burnt offering context, is the beginning of Cain and Abel. What they gave and why Abel's offering was acceptable was because he gave the first and the best to God. He didn't choose the portion that he could live without. He chose the portion that was the first and the best, and that's why his sacrifice was acceptable. So we see the the first fruit offerings in some sense as um, parallel with that whole burnt offerings that we've talked about because it seems worldly useless to offer those, right? Right? Now, now no one gets them but God, right? <laughs> and so this is exactly the sin that Cain did. The fathers uh, say that the reason his sacrifice was not acceptable was because he found those things. It wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the elements of the offering. It was that he portioned out a part of his flock that he could care less to have, <laughs> essentially. And so that's why his sacrifice was not acceptable. So we see first fruit offerings in this context, that it's the first and the best. Then other, the other context is tithing. And so tithing is something that is given along with the law, right? We said whole burnt offerings, first fruit offerings, those kind of were natural as an act of thanksgiving to God. I'm giving this portion over to God, and I'm not expecting something in return. Tithing is a little bit different. Tithing is given over primarily for the, as an act of thanksgiving always, as an offering to God, of course, always. But tithing comes with it a blessing, and actually, as as we see, a few different specific purposes of why God commanded the people of Israel to to periodically account for 10% of their wealth and give it over in and through the temple. Um, And so tithing, we see, is as old and comes from Abraham's offering to Melchizedek. So Abraham goes and he participates in a war and on his return back, where the war is victorious, and on his return back, he runs into the priest king Melchizedek And at that meeting, he offers wine and bread and a tenth of his wealth to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, in return, gives this priest king, gives him a blessing. You can read this in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And obviously, more than that, but the specific blessing is there in those two verses. This practice of tithing from your wealth was then continued by Jacob when he had a vision of the ladder to heaven. And then God giving Jacob the same blessing of the covenantal relationship, Jacob thanks God by building the altar to him and promising to give one-tenth of all he has to God in thanksgiving for receiving that blessing. Then ancient Israel, when it builds its first temple, the tithe is given by our forefathers Abraham and Jacob to become a liturgical offering of the people given from their wealth. And we can see this in Leviticus 27, um, the command is there in Leviticus 27, 30. There's like eight verses there of here's the tithe and this is the command to tithe. The tithe, as we survey through the Old Testament, was, had three different um, times and three different purposes that it was collected. I may not have all the details right about like, the liturgical settings. There's some scholarly debate and things like that around it. But we know that there were at least three purposes to the tithe. To support the ministry of the temple. And this uh, was collected periodically through the year. Uh, I think it was collected three times a year. Um, and the, the tithe was then used by the temple priests to maintain the temple to have a living wage and to so that they could go about taking care of the sacrifices and worship within the temple. So that was one purpose for the upkeep of the temple and for the priestly living wage. The other time that it was collected was every three years. All the people of God accounted their wealth and gave specifically this 10% for the needs of the poor, every three years. It was given over to the temple, earmarked, if you will, to use our, our modern language, for those needy who came to the temple and needed help. The temple priests were then with, tasked with aiding the poor from this, these collected offerings. And then the third one, uh, collection of tithe was um, in, in a book by Dr. Andrew Galaris, he calls the celebration tithe. Um, and he calls it that because it was a collection of a tithe given for the celebration of the major feasts of the temple. Because the major feasts, as, as we've heard as a parish, like when Dr. Constantino came and told us, was a major <laughs> event. People from all over. You can imagine the needs there, uh, even just looking fiscally, to maintain and take care and clean up after all of those people there to participate in these major worship events. And so the celebration tithe um, we see mentioned in Deuteronomy 14 and also in Tobit 1 uh, are those that are given over as alms for the celebration of those major Old Testament feasts. And this tithing, these different types of tithes all under the title tithes, were taken very seriously. God warns the Israelites that if they do not give their tithe, that they are robbing from him. But God also promises his blessing when they do give. It's the only time, really, in the Old Testament, um, the only time in Scripture, really, that God says to test him. And we see this in the, uh, the book of Malachi. He tells them, bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. So God promises a blessing when one practices that apportioning out a tenth of one's wealth. In the Old Testament, we see that this form of tithe is offered from one's wealth and taken up periodically in a liturgical calendar, right, in the Old Testament liturgical calendar. And that fruit offerings, first fruit offerings, are part of a thanksgiving in a harvest. And they were offered throughout the Old Testament, um, sort of as a special thanksgiving um, for reaping the blessing of a harvest. So they happened sort of seasonally, not connected necessarily just with a liturgical calendar, uh, liturgical memorials. The, last, uh, the, the third type of offering that we see in the Old Testament is what's called free will offerings. There's not a whole lot in the Old Testament about free will offerings. These become a much bigger deal within the, Christi- within the New Testament. But what we see is that the free will offerings weren't always related to the temple worship. They were paraliturgical, if you will. Generally, they're seen as... Familial hospitality toward the stranger. Um, We see this in Abraham, in his hospitality to the three angels. We see it in innumerable ways of extension of care for the stranger or the sojourner, the person passing through. Um, And so we can sort of see it and recognize in the Old Testament, but there's not a lot of, say, teaching necessarily on it. It's something that we um, can learn from. Uh, and adopt more than just have a head knowledge about. And this is mostly because before the advent of the gospel, there weren't necessarily ministries spread out throughout all of the the Old Testament people of God, like we have in the church. We did see that the temple took care of the needy, but that was in the temple. So this kind of offering in some sense, the free will offerings are uniquely Christian in character, as opposed to tithe our, our tithing teaching going all the way back, and our first fruit offering going all the way back to the beginning of creation, the, fir- the second <laughs> generation of human beings. Um, so, I want to pause there since we're past eleven to talk then about to maybe quick maybe clarification Q&A and if anyone wants to take a bathroom break or do you want to keep going? Yeah, a little stretch break. How about we come back 1110, grab a cup of coffee and then we'll we'll talk about the New Testament and how the apostles pick that up and the patristic tradition picks up um, what was here in the Old Testament.